This podcast is produced during the pandemic and hence the audio quality is home produced. Welcome to Beyond the Lines, a podcast by Roly about books, culture and our times. For 40 years, she has taught Indian art at Columbia University and is one of the world's leading scholars of South Asian art. Vidya Deheja brings alive subjects that range from Buddhist art to the esoteric temples of North India and from the sacred bronzes of South India to art under the British Raj. In her latest book, India: A Story in 100 Objects, Vidya distills her years of management and curatorial experience at the Smithsonian's Freer and Sackler Galleries and her years in academia to convey the excitement of South Asian art to non-specialist audiences. The book is a delightful collection of 100 objects that have rarely been juxtaposed with each other. Vidya and I get on a call to discuss Mughal manuscripts, why an ivory figurine found in Pompeii caused so much excitement, and her selection process for choosing the 100 objects in her new book, India: A Story in 100 Objects. I am Priya Kapoor and this is Beyond the Lines. Welcome Vidya to Beyond the Lines and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's my pleasure. Vidya, you've had an extraordinary and very prolific career as an academic and one of the foremost art historians of South Asia. Where and how did it begin? Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in school and what led you to study and work in art history? Well, you know, it's it's uh, interesting to think that my parents actually played quite a major role in this. Um I never had a standard holiday when I was a child. My father would choose a district in a state in which he was posted. He was in the government service and we would drive and we would stop at anything that was of interest, mostly ancient but also modern. So it could be a fort, it could be a stepwell, it could be a temple, it could be a Buddhist monastery, it could be an Islamic mosque. and we would just stop and i would look at these and very often they had inscriptions on them and i would think about it and say i want to know more about these objects so in a way that was the starting point um in school i went to a church of england school uh, so my um my religious text for instance was the acts of the apostles it wasn't the bhagavad gita or the vishnu sahasranama but it was the acts of the apostles um but the school also allowed us to do sanskrit and so that was a very very important sort of part of getting into the atmosphere of early india mm mm-hmm. um and then i did i so i was at zadia's college in um bombay and i then where i did ancient indian history and culture which was a fantastic sort of background for everything that i did afterwards and then i went to cambridge university in england where i shifted to archaeology you know we were digging in wet mud <laughs> in uh, on the island of jersey that was the university dig and it was a paleolithic cave site which meant the only thing we got to find as such was worked stone and bone and what a change from that to 
the hundred objects that I've had such fun with. Vidya, tell us a little bit about what were the sort of career options for somebody with the kind of degrees that you had? Did you always want to get into academia or was it museums that uh, caught your fancy first? Um, initially, it was academia because what I wanted to do was to communicate my enthusiasm for these wonderful objects that one could study. Uh, and so I was always keen to do those introductory classes, the undergraduate classes, which a lot of people in academia sort of don't want to do. Uh, but to me, it was wonderful to take a class of people who knew nothing almost about early India and introduce them to the wonder that I felt for it. Um, I did spend eight years as a museum professional, and there's something very similar there because your audience in a museum is not an audience educated in any way in South Asian history, culture, or anything. So you are, in fact, again, introducing the wonder of these objects to an uninitiated audience. And that's always been extremely rewarding as far as I'm concerned. So, I mean, in many ways, academia, which has a little bit more emphasis, obviously, on deep research, has a lot of similarity with putting together a complex exhibition um, like the one I did on Baby the Great Goddess and making it accessible to an audience who knows very little. This is because, of course, most of my things have all been done in the US. So my audience, I can assume, sort of has a vague idea about India, but not really that much. No, and I think it's fascinating that it is uh, the combination of your museum experience and your teaching, of course, that has led you to the book that we are publishing. Absolutely. There is something, when I teach, everything is PowerPoint and it's, everything is on a screen. But the joy of seeing an object in three-dimensionality in a museum, walking around it, getting the feel of it, knowing what the size is, uh, the, the way it functions is something that one just cannot convey on a screen, really. And that, of course, is one of the great pleasures of dealing with objects themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about your book, India, A Story in 100 Objects. And I personally consider it a career highlight to have persuaded you to write it. And I think I particularly love the selection of objects that you've chosen, you know, that range from Indus Valley seals to Subodh Gupta's steel sculptures and from Chola bronzes to Mughal manuscripts. The book has a very wide and unusual range of objects. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of selecting these hundreds? Uh, that was one of the most difficult parts of writing this book. There was so much that I could have put in, and the choice was extremely difficult. Um, I, I wanted to portray to an extent the multiculturalism that really is so much a part of the experience of South Asia. The fact that there are these 
wonderful Buddhist objects that there are. It's not just religion, but I'm mentioning religion, Buddhist objects and Jain patas, and that there are Hindu sculptures and that there are completely um, things that speak of trade and trade contacts across the world. So it was pulling together these objects, 100 objects that would shed light on the different strands of achievement that arose over time. And that actually has resulted in this, what I think is a very rich multicultural medley that is today's India. It's the wonder that is India, as Basham said, but it's also the rich multicultural medley that is today's India. Can you tell us which object was one that while you were researching for the book that surprised you? Um, well, one of my favorites uh, is a small ivory figurine of a, uh, of a woman. Uh, it's only about 10 inches high. It wow. is gorgeously decorated, and it is the exact counterpart of the Yakshi figures on the great stupa, Bodhi stupa at Sanchi. Now, the interesting thing about this ivory figurine, 10 inch, is that it was discovered not in India, but in Pompeii. And it is today in the Naples Museum. And why was it in Pompeii? It is part of the trade with the Mediterranean from India's west coast to the Mediterranean that reached the Mediterranean in the previous, I mean, it was there before AD 79 when Vesuvius erupted and buried all of Pompeii, including this trader's workshop where this ivory figurine from India was there. Mm-hmm. And it, it's one of those instances that is an actual evidence, physical evidence of the, the trade between India and the Mediterranean world, of which we know a lot from sort of uh, historical records, whether it's Pliny or it's a, it's a Greek text. But here is an actual object that went there. And it's quite amazing. It's part of the rich trade in pepper, that was going on. India was never isolated from the Western world. You know, we have, there's no pepper in Rome. It all comes from India or from further from Sri Lanka and and so on. And we found a a recipe book, a Roman recipe book of 400 recipes of which only five do not use pepper. In other words, 495 of them use pepper. And one begins to understand why the Romans were saying, oh my God, all our gold is going into India. It was elephant tusks, it was ivory, it was fabric, and it was, it was pepper. And so it's wonderful to be able to tell that story through this gorgeous little ivory figurine. It's, it's absolutely incredibly fascinating to also realize that it survived all these years, you know, and, and that, as you said, it's actually evidence. It's not just written evidence, but there's an actual piece. I recently also read something about pepper, that uh, one of the reasons why pepper was so valuable um, to Europe was because it also changed the way that people ate. You could suddenly cure meat and you could keep it for uh, longer. And, and uh, that's one of the reasons why trade I mean, pepper trade from India was also grew. Is that correct? Absolutely. You are absolutely right. In days 
prior to the idea even of refrigeration, pepper was a preservative. So you could store meat, meats of different types. They were spiced with pepper and pepper preserved them as well. So uh, it, it had a very practical aspect. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you've got all these wonderful little pepper cellars and things like that, where where the artistic um, instinct came in. And instead of just having pepper in a standard little, whatever you might call it, cup, they started making these beautiful objects as well. It's always the urge to adorn in whatever way, whether it's your own self or or your surroundings, is something that's absolutely part of human um, behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the sections in your book. It's called The Urge to Adorn. So let's move on from one that was your favorite or that surprised you to one obvious, uh, one that's not in the book. Uh, and this is actually a question, as I mentioned, is from my colleague Neela, who worked on the book. She wanted to know why the Taj Mahal is not in the book. Um, yes. Now, it, it I gave a lot of thought to this uh, this whole issue and finally decided that I really wanted primarily movable objects, objects that could be carried, objects that could move. And if I included the Taj Mahal, the, the instinct to include it is obviously there. It's such a fantastic monument. And we know so much more about it these days. But if we included that, it would then I would want to include temples. I would want to include Buddhist monasteries. I would want to include, it would become an architectural history. You could, of course, write a wonderful architectural history, which also has elements of this sort of thing. But the 100 Objects really allowed me to, uh, once I gave up the idea of architecture, it's allowed me to explore in many ways that architecture would have sort of stopped me from exploring. So, you know, I could talk about Indian Ocean networks. I could talk about uh, connoisseurship and luxury and brilliance. You could talk about mapping. You could talk about, yes, of course, there is a section on the rise of temple culture, but using just the model of a temple rather than actual architectural splendors, which we have so many of. There's a whole uh, section and there's some absolutely beautiful uh, manuscripts. There's Buddhist texts and later Mughal texts as well. How did the Mughal or Persian influence change the way illustrated manuscripts were created in this part of the world? Um, The miracle that is Mughal painting is still a miraculous mystery. It is one of those things where you've got uh, sort of south of it Persian influence combining with Indian, Jain, and Buddhist to create Mughal manuscripts. Uh, And the Mughal manuscripts, um, one of them, which is my favorite that I included, is uh, Emperor Jahangir, who put together a huge lot of albums, murakas, we call them. And thinking about Mughal albums, they're very much like scrapbooks that you and I might put together because they took their favorite paintings and they pasted them all together. That is not the emperor, but a really skilled artist. And one of the pages 
that I was really drawn to is one in which you have a small portrait of Emperor Jahangir on the top of the page, and then they've cut and pasted a small portrait of a very youthful Christ carrying the cross, and both of them are signed. So we know that uh, the Jahangir was done by an artist named uh, Hashim and that Jesus by Abul Hassan. And then these were pasted together on a border created by yet another artist. And on the reverse of the page, which, which we are not able to illustrate, you had a piece of calligraphy by yet another artist. So the, the manuscripts are absolutely fascinating. And I think Jahangir, who introduced this whole idea of, of albums, um, came up with a completely fascinating new genre. And uh, am I right that uh, some, as you said, that you know the the reverse of the of the painting would also have an inscription, or it may have uh, artwork, and sometimes even the borders were either done at a later stage when they were sort of uh, there was either poetry and calligraphy, and then they were sort of stuck on, or yes. they were at yes, okay. You are you are absolutely right. It was uh, they were treasured. Uh, paintings were treasured. They were treasured objects that you might give to a guest whom you really wanted to impress, and you would reuse them uh, in these albums. So that very often the calligraphy on the back of a painted page might actually be from a Safavid or a Timurid um, calligrapher of great note. Um, books were books extremely valued. It was uh, one of the treasures to have a great library of painted manuscripts was something that all the monarchs sort of aimed for. And they repeated sometimes the same theme and repainted. For instance, we've got so many manuscripts of the Ramayana or of other texts like that. And you'll find that ruler after ruler commissioned one because they all wanted to have in their library, this rich array of painted manuscripts. I often feel that, you know, being an art historian or somebody who works in a museum, you have to play detective. There's so many clues that are there and you just have to keep, uh, you know, unraveling and, and, and uh, studying those pieces more. And, they will, and the more you study, the more that it will throw up. And a Mughal manuscript is a perfect example of that, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. Uh, and there are people who've specialized in working with the marginalia, which reveals a lot. Sometimes you get the number of days that an artist worked on, on a painting. Uh, and we think that that is there so that they are paid adequately by the day. Um, and, and as you work around, the marginalia sometimes reveals the most important information mm -hmm. about production mm -hmm. of that painting. And uh, the next section that I wanted to talk to you about, which I found quite fascinating in the book called Mapping Place and Space. Some of the entries in this section include a pilgrimage map of Shatrajunya and the Delhi panorama of 1846. Do tell us more about how mapping spaces change through the ages and why you chose to actually have a section on this in the book. Um, mapping is a very interesting issue. As such, uh, the sort of maps we are used to, which are accurate, give you clear 
um, distances from one place to another, that was never of that much importance for those creating largely pilgrimage maps. Um, rather, it went from the, by the importance of a particular site, of a town, its closeness to Shatrunjaya in this case, so it's a giant pilgrimage map, or its closeness to somewhere else. And there, the artists had a very unusual way of um, different visual points of view. So they could give you a town as if you were looking at it from the air, looking into a box, and then you opened it up so that the walls of this box opened up so that the city walls lie flat. So you could have a bird's eye view and right next to it, they could show an important temple as you would see it if you were face on with it. So you get an elevation. And for them, it was nothing wrong with showing these different angled views, which no single human being from any one viewpoint could actually see in that way. And the other thing was that it was the importance of the site. So it didn't matter if it was 20 miles away or it was 200 miles away. If it was important, you would have at one end of the scroll, you would have the city from which you stop. And at the other end, you would have apparently maybe only 10 or 15 miles away, the, the sacred site. So it was the sites of importance that would be put together on any uh, pilgrimage map rather than, yes, their vague relationship to each other but not in the sense of mapping, uh, which we think of today. And that only came in once maps from Europe uh, came into India and once the British and French and other um, sort of concepts of accurate mapping came in. We did have a, a concept of mapping, which is very different from the sort of uh, three-dimensional views that... Um, Mazar Ali Khan, for instance, started creating once British maps or maps from Europe started coming in. One of the other interesting things about a book, and especially when you're putting a book together with 100 objects, is the sources where these um, images and objects come from. They're literally scattered across the world. And that was obviously one of the, um, I wouldn't say the challenges, but uh, it is something that took longer than I had expected. This brings me to my next question, Vidya, which is not um, directly related to the book, but somebody who has come from you know, the world of museums and, is a, is, and teaches art history, there is a hugely debated topic in the museum and art world of repatriating art back to the country of its origin, especially those taken during colonialism. What are your views on this? This is a very tricky subject uh, and obviously a hugely contested subject. And there's no doubt that anything that has left India once modern uh, UNESCO conventions and things of that sort came into being. Once there was this idea of a national heritage, once the nation state became prime, obviously once those sort of rules are in, then you cannot allow objects to go out of the country. Um, repatriation is a very complex issue. And the problem with repatriation is that at the time in history when 
Take Chola Bronzes, for instance, when some of these British officials went to, say, Coimbatore, and they were presented with these bronzes as, as a token of the, the esteem of the local ruler or of the local officials, um, it goes into history in a sort of way where you can say, uh, this is history, this is the result of history, and to try and repatriate may not be the best answer to it. Um, one of the important things about museums overseas is that they serve the purpose of introducing those who know nothing about a culture to that culture through these beautiful objects. Um, obviously, you can always argue the other way and argue nationalistically that we should repatriate everything. But as far as India is concerned, we do have a wealth of material. Uh, and we, I think, can afford to allow objects that have rightfully come out of India to stay where they are. But I, I do realize that there will be others who feel that everything should come back wherever we put them. Yeah. No, you're right. It just throws up more questions than answers. And I agree with you that it's a very tricky one. Um, what, uh, Vidya, what is your hope for the book? I mean, who do you think is the audience and what are you hoping to convey through India's story through 100 Objects? Um, I, I think I'm thinking of different types of readership and viewership. To some degree, um, it's really for an intelligent public who wants to know just a little bit more about uh, this long historical period uh, when we have been producing these most amazing objects. And one of the things I do want to emphasize, I hope it comes out. I mean, I haven't overemphasized it, but it is a very multicultural atmosphere. We do have a page from the Quran. We do have some wonderful Hindu sculptures of, of Shiva and Uma and, and of, of various gods and goddesses. We do have um, a Zoroastrian bowl. We do have a Sikh a parasol. We do have a representation to show you how mixed and multicultural we have been over these generations and centuries. And that, that, that is our strength and that we really should build on that strength, enjoy that strength through these objects, but also realize that we have always had room for other views. Um, whether it is Aurangzeb, who is, who we've got, to, I've put in a wonderful image of Aurangzeb, who he was quite an unusual monarch in his own way, and he has his position is being sort of restored. I hope that we can see the strength that has entered India through these various modes of thinking, of representation, of belief. Uh, and realize that this really is our strength. That's very well put. 
Thank you so much. Now we're on our last segment, which as I told you is a segment called Know Your Author. It's a rapid fire round where I ask you 10 questions. There's no right answer, so please be as impulsive as you'd like. The first question, tea or coffee? Your preference. Coffee. If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with the extra time that you'd have? I would write. Your go-to meal when you come back home from a long trip? Uh, the, the tambram in me, it's idlis and dosas. Yeah, it's amazing. It's always the childhood comfort food. For me, it's dal and chawal. That's it. Like It's always just yes. the simplest. <laughs> um, the one artist you would have liked to meet and engage with? Um, probably, I mean, Rabindranath Tagore isn't known so much as an artist, but I do have one of his drawings in the book. And it would have been interesting to see how his calligraphy, his writing, seemed to move into visual expression. What's your favorite word or one that you find yourself using a lot? <laughs> These days, multiculturalism. Right. If there was one art collection that you could get unfettered access to, which one would it be? Ah, uh, that's a difficult one. Perhaps it would have to be the British Museum. What's a guilty pleasure of yours? Eating ice cream. <laughs> What's the first career you dreamt of having as a child? Um, I was going to be an archaeologist. I was going to be digging. I was going to be supervising groups of people in India. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, that was my aim. Mm -hmm. If the Met approached you for ideas on their gala, what theme would you propose for the Met gala? Probably the sari and different ways of using it, mm -hmm. uh, which involves as much about textiles as about ways of draping the sari. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What's one thing about you that surprises people? That I'm a Tam Bram. They tend, tend to think of me, um, for some reason, as a North Indian. You know, when I have traveled in Chola temples, mm -hmm. the priests don't think I'm Tamil, and they start talking about me in Tamil. <laughs> the disconcerting exercise. No, you mentioned this before that you know your your knowledge of Tamil and Sanskrit has has helped you immensely in your work as well. And I didn't yeah. know that you were a, a Tambram um, because I think it's also your your married name. You know where it, I just yes. thought that maybe you are also from that part of the world and I mean of the country. But uh, Vidya, this brings us to the end um, of this episode. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time. But most importantly, thank you for trusting us with this book. As I said, all of us are very, very excited to be publishing it. Thank you. And it's been fun chatting with you. Thank you, Vidya. Thank you everyone for listening in. This was Beyond the Lines by Roli. If you liked this show, then subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and check out all our books on rolibooks.com. That is R-O-L-I-B-O-O-K-S dot com. Since you are here, you can get a 20% discount on all the featured books in this podcast series with a special coupon code BTL20. 
on cmykbookstore.com. That is cmykbookstore.com. We'll be back soon with our next episode. In the meantime, do tell others about our podcast and stay tuned. <laughs>